You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In his introduction to Beowulf, the scholar Friedrich Kleber explains the great Giddish warrior's resemblances to Christ by concluding that the narrative derived a superior dignity from suggesting the most exalted hero life known to Christians. Readers of another Beowulf scholar, J.R.R. Tolkien, have also noted echoes of that most exalted hero life in his epic fantasy, The Lord of the Rings. However, answering the question, who is Christ in Middle-earth, isn't easy. Unlike his fellow Inglings, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien doesn't insert a single unambiguous Christ figure at the center of the narrative like the lion Aslan. Instead, Philip Ryken argues, what we find in The Lord of the Rings is Christ not as a single thread in the story, but deeply woven into the entire narrative fabric, and visible particularly in images of his threefold messianic offices, prophet, priest, and king. By giving attention to these images of Christ and the Lord of the Rings, Ryken claims, we gain not only a deeper appreciation for our Lord, but also for the prophetical, sacerdotal, and regal dimensions of our own calling as Christians. I'm David Grubbs, host of this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with me today is Dr. Philip Reichen, president of Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. His new book is The Messiah Comes to Middle-Earth, Images of Christ's Threefold Offices in the Lord of the Rings, published by InterVarsity Press. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Reichen. Hi, David. Uh, it's great to be on the podcast. Well, before we dive into this book, could you tell us a bit about the occasion of the lectures that the book is based on? Yeah, very happily. So Wheaton College is, is blessed to have the Marion E. Wade Center on campus. Mm-hmm. And the Wade Center was really came out of relationships that Dr. Clyde S. Kilby had both with C.S. Lewis and also with Lewis's brother, uh, Warney and with J.R.R. Tolkien, and Kilby was a longstanding, revered English faculty member at Wheaton College, traveled regularly to England, uh, had personal relationships with both of those scholars, championed their work in the United States, wrote on both Lewis and Tolkien, and uh, eventually was was privileged uh, to receive many of their books, papers, and letters so we have a world-class collection on campus, not only of Lewis and Tolkien, but of Dorothy Sayers, some other, uh, except George, uh, uh, George MacDonald, other excellent authors. And um, we do all kinds of things with the Wade Center, we have lots of talks, lectures, readings. But someone had the vision to promote the Wade Center as a, a place of research for Wheaton College faculty who were not necessarily doing research in literature, um, or even necessarily theology, but in the sciences, in history, and in, in other areas, because these authors have so much to offer theologically and culturally. So it was really the, the vision of Walter Hansen, who established the Hansen Lectures, to have every year a series of three lectures named in honor of, uh, of Walter's parents, Ken and Jean Hansen, who were... Um, significant benefactors at Wheaton College. Um, Ken had a, a strong career as a Christian businessman, was service master. Anyway, Walter wanted to honor his parents, and he wanted to get Wheaton College faculty members engaged with the resources available in, in the Wade Center, so that every year there would be a series of three lectures, um, fairly high profile. We would do a lot to promote the lectures, and then uh, we've got a publishing partnership with InterVarsity to publish the lectures. And they would be on an area of interest or expertise by the faculty member engaging with one or more of the Wade Center authors. And I was I was privileged to give the first inaugural, the, the inaugural you know, annual Hansen Lectures. Part of the idea was to give them perhaps a higher profile by having the college president give them. Um, but it's, it's a great idea. It um, really is a great opportunity for our whole community to understand the breadth of what's available in the Wade Center. And to me, it was just really exciting to have an opportunity to give a, a series of lectures like this, academic lectures. Excellent. So this is really the the flagship of a series that we should be seeing more of. 
Yes, and there's a lot to look forward to. So my colleague Tim Larson, who uh, teaches theology and knows a lot about the history of, of evangelical theology and a lot, also a lot about the Victorian period, hmm. did a series of lectures on George MacDonald's Christmas essays Ooh. in the context of uh, Victorian perspectives on Christmas and the Incarnation. So um, there, are, there are ways in which Charles Dickens almost invented Christmas for the English mm -hmm. through his Christmas essays. I mean, the, the uh, and also um, other writings, A Christmas Carol is the most famous of those. But George MacDonald was very much in that tradition of writing uh, published essays uh, leading up to Christmas. And so Tim did a great job of setting those essays in their cultural and theological context. We've had uh, Christine Cologne from our English department writing this year on uh, giving lectures this year on Dorothy Sayers. Mm. And um, so that those will be coming out. Jerry Root, uh, who's a very, very well-known C.S. Lewis scholar, will be giving the lectures next year. And the idea is that you can go to the lectures one year, and then when you come back for the lectures the following year, we have a book to offer you from the lectures from the year before. So it's it's a great partnership between Wheaton College, the Wade Center, and InterVarsity Press. That's really exciting. I'll be looking for the next installments as they come. Well, this book is grounded theologically in the threefold offices of Christ, as the title says. So what are these three offices, and what is the biblical basis for this doctrine? The, uh, the threefold office of Christ pertains to his ministry as prophet, as priest, and as king in, in the total biblical context of those offices. So there are aspects of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ which are prophetic, that is to say, they involve miracle working, which is characteristic of biblical prophets, and also truth-telling, um, partly predictive truth-telling about the future. We often think of prophetic uh, in that sense, uh, telling you something about the future, maybe even a specific prophecy of something that will definitely come to pass. But the prophets in, in, in their biblical context also tell you some comforting and some uh, disturbing uh, discomforting truths about the present, perhaps about idolatry or patterns of sin, things that need to be exposed and brought to light. That's all part of prophetic ministry, and that is part and parcel of what Jesus did. Um, the Gospels are full of both his teaching and his miracle working, and the teaching that Jesus does is, is really both kinds of prophetic teaching. There are prophecies about the future, about the fall of the temple, about the end of the world, um, but there are also lots of things that Jesus said about the present moment, uh, about the life of discipleship, about um, sin that needed to be challenged in the life of the community. That's all part of the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. Then, of course, he's got a kingly ministry. Um, he was born as king. Um, that's true from clear, very clear from his, his birth narratives. And he died as king. Even the, the notice above him on the cross specified that he was king of, king of the Jews and um, has entered now into an eternal kingship. So there are many signs of the, the royalty of Jesus as the true and ultimate son of David. And there's also a priestly ministry that Jesus exercises. Um, pre priests um, are those who are called to the task of prayer. They, they carry the spiritual burdens of the people of God in prayer. And they also um, do exercise in their biblical context of a, a ministry of instruction and everything having to do with sacrifices. And um, Jesus is the priest who not only brought a sacrifice, but became one who offered himself as the sacrifice in his death on the cross. And also um, very strongly exercises a ministry of intercession. There are lots of examples of that in the Gospels, times when Jesus prays for his disciples prays for their protection or their deliverance. There's the high priestly prayer in uh, John chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples, um, past and present and future. And of course, um, the book of Hebrews is basically an extended argument for the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, his, uh, the priestly ministry that he now exercises in heaven. And I am just skating the surface there, David, but, but those are three very strong themes pertaining to the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And it's a way of thinking about and understanding 
the multiple dimensions of his of his ministry. There's always more to learn about Jesus, and this is a way of um, uh, not just seeing the ministry of Jesus through a, a window, but actually refracting it so that it comes out in multiple dimensions, the prophetic, the priestly, the kingly. Excellent. I'd like to pursue the idea further. Uh, I was really impressed by the way that through these three lectures, you anchor the doctrine again and again in historical theology. Um, when I was first taught about Christ's threefold offices, uh, John Calvin was the theologian cited, so I assumed, and I now know I was wrong, that the doctrine was peculiarly reformed. But in fact, it's much more older, it's much older and much uh, more properly Catholic than I thought. So how historically deep and ecumenically wide do you go in the background of this doctrine? Yeah, so that's a great that's a great question. And to me, it was one of the exciting parts of working on the project. Um, I, I was familiar with the threefold office of Christ in the same way that you were. That is in the context of Reformed theology. As a Presbyterian, I was raised on the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, um, and the the threefold office of Christ is a significant um, teaching there. It's very strong in the Heidelberg Catechism um, as well. Mm-hmm. At some point, um, and probably, the, I'll just say the first, I, so I would have some exposure to the threefold office of Christ um, through just knowing some confession and catechism uh, growing up. But I, I remember um, really being taught threefold office of Christ by Tim Keller at Westminster Seminary in my first year of seminary, uh. because Tim Keller really saw it as a great paradigm for thinking about pastoral ministry that has these dimensions. It has a prophetic dimension, it has a priestly dimension, it has a kingly dimension. And at some point in my studies, I became aware of the fact that the threefold office of Christ actually goes all the way back to Eusebius in his famous ecclesiastical history. And Eusebius is one of the church fathers, and he actually opens his ecclesiastical history by going back to the Old Testament, back to the the three ways in which um, there are three figures in the Old Testament who were anointed for their callings, and what really impressed Eusebius was the fact that all of these three offices come together in Christ. And um, to me, it's just very exciting to realize that almost every page of the Bible has something to do with prophetic, priestly, or kingly ministry in one way or another. And there's this rich background that prepares you for the coming of um, the, the supreme prophet, priest, and king, and it's one of the ways that I think we see the um, the fulfillment of all the promises of God coming together in Christ. Many of those pro- promises relate to prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry. And what the Reformers really discovered, I think, um, and discovered in Scripture and then really promoted through their teaching, is that uh, the followers of Christ also have these callings. And so there are New Testament passages that talk about um, the church as a kingdom of priests, or that call us to certain kinds of uh, prophetic ministry where we are speaking God's word uh, to one another. So it, to me, it's as if, I don't know exactly the best way to depict this graphically, but you have these three um, large streams of, of teaching and expectation in the Old Testament that all flow together into the person of Christ. And then at the point of, specifically at the point of his death and resurrection, those three streams that have been concentrated into one now are um, dispersed and flow out into millions of rivulets because every every believer has prophetic, priestly, and kingly aspects to, to his or her calling. And uh, this isn't just something for Eusebius. It's something that's really been through the history of the church. So medieval theologians, many of them, typically thought in terms of kingly um, and also priestly, um, but maybe not as much um, uh, kingly and prophetic, but maybe not as much the priestly ministry. Um Martin Luther really pulled all three of the offices together and emphasized this aspect of the priesthood of all believers. But you find it in Aquinas, for example, and there are other medieval theologians that talk about the offices of Christ. Um, I was part of the background for my own 
um, thinking and writing on this is that I we, we have a, a tradition at Wheaton where new faculty write a faith and learning paper where they integrate Christian faith and theology with their academic discipline. This is something cool. that faculty do sometime between after their second year at Wheaton and, um, you know, by their fifth or sixth year. And I decided that I wanted to participate in that process as president. I do have an appointment in the theology department. Um, it wasn't something I was required to do the way tenure track faculty would, but I, I got excited about working on this project. And, um, Wheaton is not a uniquely reformed institution. We represent various streams of evangelical theology. So I, I was, I wanted to explore where else do we find the threefold office of Christ? And I, I had heard Dan Boone, who's the president of Trevecca Nazarene, refer to the threefold office of Christ in the context of John Wesley. So I, I contacted Dan, and he had great resources for me about how important this was to John Wesley, and arguably is kind of an organizing principle of his theology. Um, it, it's something, as uh, Karl Barth is pr probably the best things in, in Barth's writings from my perspective are some of his historical theological writings. And Karl Barth was very familiar with uh, this threefold office tradition and so has um, important and compelling things to say in his writings. And, and so that there, there's just a huge breadth to um, these uh, these these offices of Christ being understood in Christian theology, and I think, whenever whatever the Christian tradition is, um, the more faithful it is, the more biblical it will be, and the more biblical it is, the more a central theme like the kingly ministry of Jesus Christ will come to the fore. And so, to me, in a way, it's not surprising that this has become something ecumenical. The thing that was a little surprising to me was to see how strong this tradition has become in, in, uh, in Roman Catholic theology. I'm not sure I talk about it in this book, but Eve Congar um, was really captivated um, by, by this threefold office of Christ, particularly its implications for the church as the body of Christ. And I, I think must have been picking up some of this from Protestant sources but um, even in the, the more recent Roman Catholic catechism, there's an understanding of prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry, not just for Jesus, but actually that all believers, the laity, and not just priests, there's an aspect of prophetic, priestly, and kingly for all of us. So I, I think it's, it, you'd be hard-pressed now, I think, to find many doctrines that are as universal or as deeply rooted historically as the threefold office of Christ. That's really, really interesting. Um, when, when I saw uh, when I saw you citing, um, I mean, John Henry Newman alongside Wesley, alongside Luther, it, it, it just got really exciting because um, I, I I don't know that the 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 the, the when, when something that 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 I'd always sort of believed, and just to find out that it's it's not parochial, it's not in a corner. I, I to to feel oneself in that strong that strong current of the Church of the Ages um, is is just powerful. I think. No, I agree with that, David, and I think um, I I also think that in the different traditions you get a little bit of a different flavor or a different emphasis. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I come out of the Reformed tradition. I tend to see Reformed theology often as all-encompassing and bringing together some of the best of other theological traditions. But you read Wesley on the threefold office of Christ, and, and there's, a, you know, there's a strong emphasis on sanctification and what its implications would be for sanctification. And, and that's not surprising that that would be an emphasis for Wesley. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives a, a for sure a different flavor, but I, I also think maybe some new and fresh insights into the doctrine. So um, I think uh, it, it's not merely compelling to see this, this idea fleshed out in, in traditions maybe that go beyond our own, but it, it also becomes extremely useful um, because we, we learn from that. Exciting. Let's learn from Tolkien now. Uh, whenever a theological reading of Tolkien's Middle-earth stories is pitched, somebody in the crowd is going to raise the objection. But Tolkien hated allegory, and Middle-earth isn't Narnia. So what answers do you give to this objection in your lectures? 
So, you know, this was definitely something I had to wrestle with. And I'm, I, one, one thing I'll say is, um, so, and then, you know, this is uh, maybe the advantage of being a historical theologian. You can kind of dabble in a few things. I'm, I'm not a legitimate C.S. Lewis scholar. I'm not a legitimate J.R.R. Tolkien scholar. Um, I'm, there, there must be people that know more about the history and theology of the threefold office of Christ um, than I do, you know, particularly systematic theologians. But, um, you know, it, it's historical theology is a nice field for touching in a couple of these different areas. And I, I did know enough about Tolkien to know how critical he was of allegory. And um, Tolkien and Lewis make for a really interesting contrast here, because Lewis wrote at least one out-and-out -out allegory. Um, his Pilgrim's Regress is, is, you know, very explicitly presented as allegorical. And a lot of mm -hmm. people read the Narnia Chronicles in a fairly allegorical way. I mean, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is, is you know, an allegorical book in many ways. Um, you know, has, has, you can draw some pretty close connections between the, the outline of the plot there and the Christian gospel. And Lewis felt, um, you know, very comfortable uh, with, with allegory as a genre. And it made Tolkien a lot more uneasy, and he, he didn't always appreciate it when people thought of The Lord of the Rings in some way as an allegory, because he was looking for a narrative that was um, more, less obvious, perhaps more complex, uh, more multidimensional. But I, I think one of the things that happened over time was the more people started noticing uh, Christian truth in the Lord of the Rings and talking about this aspect that reminded them of the gospel or that aspect, um, you know, I think in a way Tolkien had to come around to recognizing some of that and figuring out how to account for it in his own understanding of his own, own writing. So as time goes on, you, I think you find Tolkien making a few more, um, a few more concessions to the people that wanted to look at, at his writings, um, maybe not allegorically, but at least as expressing Christian truth and Christian doctrine. And I definitely knew in presenting these lectures that I was going to have to deal with this issue. Um, you like to uh, anticipate the objections that people will have and then give at least a reasonable answer to it. Let, let me just, if I may, David, um, let me just read a comment that George Sayer, who was a, one of C.S. Lewis's former students, was a, a kind of peripheral inkling, I think you could say. Um, he was part of a panel discussion at Wheaton College in the 1970s, and, and he said that, and I, I quote from him, Tolkien, I found, very much objected to the idea that he wrote his books as Christian propaganda or anything like it. He wrote them as stories. He, he would sometimes pull a bunch of American letters or reviews towards him, and say, you know, they're now telling me that. And then he would say some of the things they told him about the Lord of the Rings. He'd say, you know, I never thought of that. I thought I was writing it as a pure story. And I think Tolkien came to recognize that because he was so deeply Christian himself, that he could hardly help but write a narrative were things that were deeply important to the Christian faith, the Christian perspective on courage or on sacrifice or on community, um, that they were deeply Christian books, deeply Christian stories, um, because of the kind of deeply Christian person that Tolkien was. And he, he always liked to distance himself from allegory as a particular kind of genre where there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between symbol and spiritual reality. Um, and he liked to create a little bit of a distance there, but came to recognize that there were a lot of theological truths in his writings. He would, he would distinguish, for example, between what he called the significance of something and allegory. It could be significant, even spiritually significant, without being um, allegorical. What was really interesting for me to discover, um, David, in the process of doing research for the lectures and then for the book, is that there was a... a a professor in Australia named Barry Gordon that wrote an essay that was never published, although it's available in his university archives at the University of Newcastle in Australia. He, he wrote an essay on kingship, priesthood, and prophecy in The Lord of the Rings. And this wasn't the starting huh. point in my research, but it was something that I, I came upon along the way. Initially, when I was asked to do the Hansen Lectures, 
I was thinking about um, just doing something on kingship, perhaps, and looking at it in Lewis, Tolkien, and Sayers. Or I, I tried to think of a way to do the threefold office and do it with three different authors. And eventually, I, I just the more I thought about it, the more I, it just seemed to me that The Lord of the Rings had, uh, had everything I wanted in it. And, and by the way, if you ever get the chance uh, to do a scholarly project which requires you to read The Lord of the Rings and study it carefully, I mean, to me, what a great project it was to work on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I, I found this essay, and then... After that, I, I discovered that um, Tolkien himself was aware of the essay. That I don't know if Gordon sent it to him or somehow it came across Tolkien's desk. And Clyde Kilby um, talks about a conversation that he had with Tolkien about this, about this essay. And um, the point of the essay is that primarily Gandalf is a prophetic figure, Frodo is a priestly figure, Aragorn obviously is a kingly figure, and that there are important themes of this that are biblically rooted, that are, um, you know, that are worked out in the in the course of the Lord of the Rings. I, I, I like to think that Professor Gordon, if he had um, uh, lived to see the day, would see in my book something that just took further and fleshed out what he had merely outlined or sketched out in a deeper way. And I, I suppose somebody could take what I've done and, and take it to the next level as well. But interestingly, um, here's what Tolkien said about Gordon's analysis. Much of this is true enough, meaning that there are themes of, of prophetic, priestly, and kingly in, in Lord of the Rings, except, of course, this is Tolkien uh, speaking again, the general impression given almost irresistibly in articles having this analytical approach, whether by Christians or not, that I had any such schema in my conscious mind before or during the writing. Um, it's it's a little bit like uh, it's a little bit, bit like what Aaron said to Moses about the golden calf. Uh, you know, this this thing just kind of came out. Um, and Tolkien is saying, you know, I didn't I didn't have this plan in mind, um, but. You know, the I think Tolkien recognized, yeah, there's something to that. And so what I try to do in the book is not make too much of it and certainly not try to say these are all things that Tolkien had in mind, mm -hmm. but just to display how how the, the novel resonates with biblical themes. And I think in some ways illuminates, certainly illustrates some of those biblical themes, but maybe even helps us um, come to a deeper understanding of them by bringing them to life. Mm. I would have hoped that the the author of the the essay on fairy stories w would have been open to the possibility that his own fairy story might point gospel word in some particular ways, uh, even no, if I, he didn't mean it. <laughs> no, I absolutely think that's correct. And there were, um, and Tolkien being the the author of this essay on fairy stories, and mm -hmm. and. Um, there were things that Tolkien valued very deeply in um, in narrative. So, you know, what he called catastrophe, which is the good catastrophe. It's a story that's almost tragic, but it, it turns redemptive. Um, and I, again, I'll just say what he valued in narrative, it's not surprising that that, that came out in his great narrative. Mm. Um, so, um, and I, I think we should really give Tolkien credit because I think when you see him wrestling with this question of the various ways in which fiction can be in a sense, Christian or resonate with Christian truth, I think over the course of his life and writing career and teaching career, he came to a deeper understanding of that and was willing to have his views on this challenged um, corrected, come to a, come to a deeper understanding. And, and, you know, part of the strength of the friendship that Lewis and Tolkien and the others had was that they were all lifelong learners. Hmm. Well, you use the term image to describe Gandalf, Frodo, and Aragorn's relationship to Christ frequently. Um, wh what would you say is the distinction between an image and what you've called allegory, what we might call allegory proper. Yeah, you'd, you'd probably get a better 
answer to that question from an English professor, but I'm, I'm using the term image fairly generally and broadly. An image is anything that gives us a picture of something. And so I think there are various uh, virtues, Christian virtues, and various aspects of the story of redemption that um, in various ways the the Lord of the Rings gives us, uh, in various ways the Lord of the Rings depicts, it gives us an image, a a picture. Um, Allegory is, to me, a much more specific genre. It's something like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, for example, where you have characters that bear the name of certain virtues, and it's very much a one-to-one correspondence between what's in the narrative and um, the spiritual truth that it's meant to, to represent. And I don't think um, Tolkien was opposed to allegory in and of itself. I think he recognized that it was a legitimate genre, but it is a little irritating if you're an author and you're trying to do something different than what people think you're trying to do. And particularly if you're trying to do something that's a little more complex and a little more nuanced for somebody to flatten it out and treat it as a little more simplistic than it is, um, I can see why Tolkien, just in the interest of um, understanding what a genre is, was pretty insistent that he wasn't writing allegory. I don't think it was a criticism of allegory per se. I, I will also say, though, that um, I think um, it may be that Tolkien felt that allegory was a little simpler as a genre, and he was maybe striving for something more sophisticated than an allegory would present. Mm. That makes sense. Well, let's look at some of this, uh, some of the images in this gallery you've set for us. Uh, Gandalf is the prophet of the three. So you've, you've sketched out a bit already about uh, the essence of that prophetic role. So how do we see Gandalf's exercise of prophetic ministry uh, lead us to a better understanding of the prophetic Christ? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I I think one thing I would like to think is that somebody that reads um, this this book on, on the images of Christ's threefold office in The Lord of the Rings then goes back to the Lord of the Rings. There, there are even more things that I've pointed out which will um, occur to you. In fact, I'm, I'm currently reading the Lord of the Rings to my 13-year-old daughter. And um, nice. more than once I've said, oh, I actually, that, that's actually a pretty good example of what I was talking about, or I, I don't see that marked in my copy. And I, I, it might have been good for me to mark that because it, it fit in with the theme. So I think there's more to discover even than the things that I... Um, point out uh, in the book. You know, it's interesting, Gandalf carries a staff. He certainly is capable of performing the miraculous. Um, You know, it's not just uh, the occasional fireworks display in the Shire. It's, um, you know, it's great rolling boulders that are descending on black riders um, in the fords of Bruin. And and, um, it's how he is able to wield his staff in battle on occasion. So he's definitely um, somebody who is able to perform miraculous signs and wonders and has a strong reputation um, for that. But um, I think even more so, it's the things that he teaches and, and says. I mean, Gandalf is the one person in Middle Earth that people who are on the side of what is right and good will listen to. Um, and it's often commented, particularly by the hobbits, you know, Gandalf doesn't always tell you what you want to hear. Um, sometimes it's a warning of danger, um, whatever it may be, but it's it's something trustworthy and reliable. And on occasion, he does um, say some things that are prophetic, not, not so much in the sense of predicting exactly what is going to happen. But, you know, all through the novel, Gandalf has a sense that Gollum has a part to play in this story before the end. Um, and that's more than an instinct, I think. It has a, um, you know, a prophetic um, aspect to it. So I think, um, boy, you could, as it were, apply some of those themes in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, I think of, of what Aragorn says when um, the, the Fellowship of the Ring has entered into the minds of Moria, 
They're a little worried they've lost their way. Gandalf can't remember quite where they are. They are. It's pitch black. And um, Aragorn is, is fairly unperturbed because he has learned to trust the leadership and instruction that Gandalf provides. And that's a, that's a great illustration of something very important for us in the Christian life is once, once you have a track record of trusting in Christ in his guidance in his word, um, you learn to trust it all the more, even when you are in difficult or desperate situations. That's just one maybe illustration of the way Gandalf is, it shows us what a good prophet is like and, and how we should orient ourselves to the prophetic ministry of, of Jesus Christ. I'll just also point out that um, the a lot of the words of Gandalf have the effect of strengthening the hearts of of his friends and companions when they are disheartened and discouraged. And that's a strong theme in biblical prophecy, tremendous words of, of consolation and comfort, um, even in the prophets who are in the most difficult times. Or, or think, And just think of all the examples of that in the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus is in his prophetic ministry says, in this world you will have trouble, but also take heart. For I have overcome the world. So it's it's an ability to look at and describe um, our life situation and all of its difficulty, but in a way that is ultimately hopeful. And that's the kind of prophetic ministry that uh, that Jesus exercises in our own life. Th- those are at least a few examples, David, of, of, I think, the things that we can see in Gandalf. One of the things as I was reading the book, because, you know, you, you know that you're being given a a fruitful way of looking at a text when it casts your mind back to your own memories of it and you begin to see things in it that you'd not previously noted. And uh, sometimes Gandalf isn't welcomed well and uh, have in, in reading your, the, your discussion of him as prophet, um, I remembered 1 Kings 18 when Ahab calls Elijah a troubler of Israel. Just just because he's bringing the news that he doesn't want to hear. Um, and that, and uh, I, I appreciated the, the sorts of things that you had to say as, as well about um, prophets as sometimes unwelcome truth tellers. Yeah, absolutely. And so in, in Gandalf, um, you know, he's the, some, who is it that calls him Stormcrow? Is that, is that when he goes to Theoden or is mm-hmm. that Denethor? But um, the uh, prophets are often unwelcome. They're, Prophets are polarizing, and they're polarizing in a way that reveals the true spiritual state of the person who is responding to the prophet. And I, I think Gandalf is definitely that kind of figure. And as if you've sort of, particularly as a child, if you've walked with Gandalf um, through The Hobbit and through those adventures, you've come to a place of, I mean, just anything Gandalf says, you know, it's, it's absolutely right. And so then mm-hmm. when the narrative, when you encounter people that do, you know, do not want to listen to him or criticize what he's saying, you just know right away, they're not on the right side of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the prophetic figure and, and, you know, Jesus is like that. It's, you know, he's a sign appointed for um, both the rising, but also for the falling of, of those in Israel. And um, uh, that's, true in his uh, prophetic ministry as much as any other aspect of his ministry. And in, in, in his, you know, public teaching, um, you know, the things that he says are often very comforting or encouraging to his own disciples, but they're the kind of thing that make other people angry if they're not on board with the message of his kingdom. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's turn to priesthood. Frodo is our priest, and I've found his priesthood less easy to immediately recognize than Gandalf's prophetic role, but it's clearly more central to the plot. So how does the ring-bearer illumine the priestly office of Christ? Yeah, you know, I came in with, I think, a similar kind of perspective. Um, you know, Aragorn's obviously the king. That that takes you about a millisecond to figure <laughs> out. Right. Uh, not too much longer to recognize Gandalf as prophetic, particularly if you understand the variety of things that come together in prophetic ministry. Um, I had an instinct early on that, that Frodo was, um, 
you know, a bearer of a burden who makes a sacrifice. And so I was thinking mainly of the sacrificial aspect of, um, of, of Frodo's work. And I think for me, there was the most new learning and most discovery in really getting into, um, into Frodo's character and how it might relate to priestly ministry. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One is just how strong the theme of bearing a burden is all the way through Lord of the Rings. And I can remember from some of my first readings as a child, just almost feeling, I mean, you could almost feel that burden with Frodo, how much it was dragging him down. You know, that was one of, for me, one of the vivid memories of the books. But there's a lot of talk of burden bearing even very early on before Frodo really understands or experiences what the, what the burden is. The other thing that was, you know, to me, an exciting, um, I'll come close to discovery, is really to recognize that, um, really to recognize that, that Frodo lays down his life um, in, in The Lord of the Rings. He does not actually die, but it is tantamount to such a sacrifice because he and Sam go to Mount Doom without any means of escape or return. And they, mm-hmm. they, they, frankly think that they're goners, but they're still going to carry this through. And so it is an act of loving sacrifice for the salvation of Middle Earth um, in terms of the hard intention of it. But I, I didn't realize as fully how how much the um, Gandalf's descent into hell, I'll call it, in Mount Moria, his you know, struggle with the Balrog, how, how, how all of that is clearly presented as... Um, you know, as a, a death and resurrection, and he comes back as a glorious, resplendent figure, he is is transfigured. It's not a literal death and resurrection, but it's as close to a literal death and resurrection as you could come, symbolically and mythically, I think in the case of both Frodo and Gandalf. And then when you have Aragorn's death, and just the amazing description, I mean, it's such mm. a beautiful passage of his, um, really his glorification at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a death and resurrection motif in all three of these characters. And it's almost as if, and I'd really be interested to know what what Tolkien would say in response to that. It's almost as if he couldn't help himself because he had three heroes, actually more than that, as I'll explain in a minute, three heroes who were so admirable, so worthy, so characteristic of Christian virtue, it, it's as if he, he, in order to show just who they were in all their fullness, they, he had to show each of them going through a death and presenting them as coming through with some kind of resurrection. And similarly, the passage of um, where Sam uh, finds Frodo in Shelob's lair, and he's illuminated by the file that he has from Galadriel. And, and that, again, it's, I mean, it's very much a, a glorification, transfiguration kind of scene, that there's, there's a beauty here that has been, in a way, resurrected, although it's not, again, I'll say it's not a literal resurrection. So, so that was part of the, you know, what was exciting about looking at, at Frodo. But then what became so compelling was how very strong the theme is that hobbits don't do anything alone. They always do things together with other hobbits. When they're Hmm. separated from one another, they're terribly lonely. When they are, um, when they have any important tasks to do, they really would not think of doing it alone. And it's just a huge theme all the way through Lord of the Rings. It's not, so I felt as I went on, I couldn't really talk about Frodo without talking about Frodo and Sam together. And then when you got more into it, um, you, you know, you realized it's really all of the all of the hobbits. It's an amazing depiction of the priesthood of all believers. And I, I could give so many examples of it. But but even early on, Frodo has this errand. He's going to go off to Rivendell with the ring by himself. He thinks he's fooling everybody else. Of course, he isn't, because people that live in such close community and and really care for one another, they, they know instinctively what 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 their close friends are wrestling with and what their perspective would be. And the the thought that Frodo had that he would go off on this dangerous adventure by himself is, is obviously so beyond the pale of what any sensible hobbit would ever do. It's just not even worth an argument for Mary and Pippin and, and Sam. Um, 
you know, or similarly in that, you know, that tremendous scene when the company has been parted, uh, the orcs have attacked, Boromir is slain, um, Frodo is pushing off almost invisibly with his little boat and he's going to go off to mortar alone. And, um, you know, Sam catches up with them and, and Frodo explains, no, you can't go with me. I'm going to die. And, um, you know, Sam says, of course you are, of course you're going alone and I'm going with you. Um, you know, it just <laughs> instinctively for the hobbits, they, they absolutely do everything together. And mm. I think particularly in our individualistic culture, we don't have as deep a sense of the communion of the saints and the priesthood of all the, all believers as we should have. And, um, there's a hobbit way of looking at that, which is absolutely a corrective. And, um, you know, I knew that Frodo and Sam were, um, you know, very close friends. Frodo couldn't have done it without Sam, but it just really came to life for me thinking in terms of the priesthood of all believers and how, how that extended to Mary and Pippin as well. And, and, and also, um, the many ways that Sam, even early on is always taking an extra burden for Frodo. He's carrying something heavier. Um, he is a co-burden bearer with Frodo in every possible way that he can be. Of course, Hmm. most memorably, literally carrying Frodo up the mountain when he, he really can't go on on, on his own. Um, I mean, that's all priesthood of, of all believers. And it's um, to me, it was an exciting discovery to see how strong a theme it was all the way through Lord of the Rings. Well, you've been saying priesthood of all believers, and I think you've already kind of hinted in, in, in this direction earlier when you mentioned the, the, cat, the current catechism of the Catholic Church. But Tolkien is a Roman Catholic, and the priesthood of all believers, at least I've always been taught, is a a distinctly Protestant idea. Or is it? I mean, does that pose a, a problem to your interpretation, or do you think Tolkien would be nodding his head along with you? Yeah, so it would really be interesting to know Tolkien's perspective on that. I think, you know, this is just one of a lot of areas where Tolkien was a good biblical Christian. And so it was natural to think of people bearing one another's burdens. That's a strong New Testament theme, Mm -hmm. whether you organized it into a doctrine of priesthood of all believers or not. It certainly is the case that in terms of the flow of theological history, the priesthood of all believers is something named and described and becoming important in theology. That is a a Protestant innovation. It's, um, It's you know, really introduced by by Martin Luther and then expanded out by some of the other reformers. Oh, it's not just priesthood of all believers. It's actually kingship of all believers and prophet of, of all believers. There's something that kind of unfolds for the reformers that has not been um, explained, described, articulated, applied the way that the, that Reformation theology does. And I, I think, um, I mean, I, I haven't been able to trace out, I, maybe somebody could, you know, what are some of the sources. What was Eve Congar reading that really put him on the track of some of these doctrines? You know, how familiar was he with Reformation theology? Were there some other mediating figures that I don't I don't know about? There there may well be. Um, so it it might be the case that Tolkien had never heard the phrase priesthood of all believers or was aware of it as something that really wasn't Catholic, that was a Protestant doctrine. Um, so I, I can't really answer that question, but I think um, maybe a way of saying it is that as Roman Catholic theologians, some of them, and I think in a way you could say now the Roman Catholic Church because of the catechism, um, as they thought about the scriptures and maybe what the Reformation was saying, they, they reached a point of saying, you know, this is so biblical, we, this has to be part of our thinking. And um, so I don't I definitely don't see it as a problem for my interpretation, partly because I think um, my interpretation isn't narrowly tied to having something be strongly intentional for Tolkien. Mm. And uh, this might be another one of those areas where somebody sat down with Tolkien and said, yeah, no, just to be really clear, I wasn't (laughs) thinking about any of that here. But, you know, I I can see some truth to that. He, He might have come around on this one a little bit as well. Mm. Well, and even if we come back around from the Protestant angle, um, the 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 doctrine of the priesthood of all believers does not function function in the Reformed Protestant tradition to say that, and that is why we have no officially sanctioned ordained ministers of the gospel. 
um, you know, it, it's it's not as if the priesthood of all believers necessarily uh, undercuts or detracts from the importance of actually having designated ministers. No, I agree with that. I, I do think if you look at the history of theology, it's it's not surprising that Roman Catholic theology in its medieval manifestations didn't readily uncover a doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, because when you have a priest functioning in a priestly capacity, um, you don't really think outside the box to think, oh, well, who else could be a priest, and how is the New Testament thinking about priesthood in a bigger way? So it, it maybe is not surprising that the Reformation became fertile soil for recognizing the priesthood of all believers in Scripture. But clearly, Roman Catholic theology does not think and if you look at the Roman Catholic Catechism and sort of how it unpacks the priesthood of all believers, and it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's a central theme in Roman Catholic theology, but it's certainly present. Um, you know, Roman, the Roman Catholic Catechism unpacks a little bit. You know, the fact that you have a priest that has this mediatorial role doesn't mean that in a different, maybe lesser sense or less central sense, you don't also have... Um, a, a priestly responsibility. So it's, it mm. certainly seemed to be compatible in Roman Catholic um, theology. Okay. Sorry, that that's just something that as I was reading, I was just really, really interested in the way that you were developing it and wanted to maybe probe a little more. Well, The Lord of the Rings ends with the return of the king as, well, as the story of the world will. So how does the royal ranger Aragorn teach us to discern and long for the revelation of true kingship? Yeah, so that's, a, that's another great question, David. And um, there's so many aspects to it. I mean, one, one is, um, I think you see in Aragorn somebody who has a sense of his calling and identity as king and also has to exercise a lot of patience and go through a lot of suffering until that until that calling is fulfilled. And so I think, um, particularly when I was reading the the novel with this kingship theme in mind, of course, all of the passages that refer to is Aragorn a king or hint that he might be a king or where he has to go through certain kinds of hardship or suffering, he he certainly cannot. Um, embrace the woman that he loves until he has fulfilled his calling. Um, you just had a maybe a greater sense of um, anticipation for Aragorn's kingship and also the, the long suffering that that it involved. Another thing that that I thought was really interesting on when I was reading reading Tolkien with a view to these lectures was how many different titles and epithets Aragorn is given. And um, that's a testimony to his greatness. Um, you know, if you're pretty great, you might have one memorable nickname. But if you're really great, you've got lots of nicknames because there are different aspects of your character and who you are that need to be called upon. And I, I thought even that was really similar between Aragorn and the Christ. How many how many names, nicknames and titles um, titles are given? One thing and I, I don't think I really get into this in detail in the book. Um, there's a really great essay on this. Um, one thing that I didn't really understand, I mean, we usually think of, um, and I, I'm, I'll have to apologize here because I'm not going to remember all of the right nomenclature for this, but we usually think of kingship as something that is hereditary. If you're from a family, you're going to be the king. That's who you are. And we usually think of the Lord of the Rings um, in that kind of category, kind of like we think of Prince William, you know, he's going to be the king someday of England. Mm -hmm. um, he already has that identity. It's not something he needs to go through any angst about in terms of is he or isn't he the king. And, um, and I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, you get a little bit of that psychological approach in the film version, I, overall, I'm, I'm pretty happy with Peter Jackson as trying to be very faithful to The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. But I, I do think there's a little bit more of maybe a psychological drama within Aragorn that doesn't actually capture what, what uh, Tolkien was really after. And um, I think, by the way, that the um, essay I'm thinking about, I'm sure I've got a footnote or something for it in the book, has appeared in Christian Scholars Review. But actually, there's a different tradition of kingship where you actually have to enter into kingship not merely by hereditary birth, 
but by actually fulfilling the function of the king. You, mm -hmm. you actually have to live out the calling in order to be recognized as the king. And that's a very strong theme in some um, northern European mythology and approaches to kingship. And The Lord of the Rings is that kind of kingship book, not, not the kind that we usually think of. That makes it a little bit more of an uneasy fit, I think, with the biblical narrative, because in the biblical narrative, the son of David, I mean, it kind of settles it. He, he's, he's entitled to be the king. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have to embrace and enter into the calling, but he doesn't have to prove himself to be the king the same way that you did in this northern mythology around kingship. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's maybe a difference between what Tolkien is up to and, and a biblical pattern. That's maybe, I don't, I don't know that that's a counter argument to the view that I've taken here, but it makes the picture a little more complicated. It means, it means we need to make sure we don't, don't um, read the kingship in Lord of the Rings a little too, a little simplistically. Um, to me, what is just so beautiful and so compelling is the entrance of the king into his royal city mm -hmm. and, um, and also the, the marriage to his royal bride. And I just think some of these passages are the most, I, I, I mean, they're, there, there are passages, particularly in, Lord, in uh, Return of the King, I, I really can't, you know, read without weeping. I just think they're so, um, so beautiful. Um, I'm just pulling out my copy here to see if I can pull up, um, you know, one of these, one or more of these um, passages. So, but what, the point I want to make with it is I'm thumbing through my copy here, David, is that some, I think, I think one of the things that Tolkien really shows us is the beauty of the king. Mm -hmm. And I think there are aspects of what it means for a king to come into a kingdom and what it means for a king to take a bride to be his, um, to be his beloved spouse, uh, his beloved wife. I think there are aspects of the beauty and the glory of that that you need a story to really help you understand. And I, I think mm. Revelation 21 and 22 are, are um, you know, are that are, are stories like that. But I, I also think that something of the beauty of that um, comes through in The Lord of the Rings in a way that, um, you know, wouldn't have come through to me as powerfully. Here, here's just one example. Um, it's from the coronation of Aragorn. Frodo came forward and took the crown from Faramir and bore it to Gandalf. And Aragorn knelt, and Gandalf set the white crown upon his head. And the people are there. They're looking at him in wonder. And it seems to them that a king was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days, he seemed. And yet in the flower of manhood and wisdom sat upon his brow and strength and healing were in his hands and a light was about him. I just don't see how if you're somebody who knows the scriptures, you, you, you can read a passage like that and not connect it to the person and um, the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, and so um, th those are some of the aspects yeah. that I think are really compelling in the in the kingship of, of Aragorn. Yeah, I I had to go back and reread uh, reread those passages after uh, after reading that lecture in this book just to just to reacquaint myself with the beauty of it and it's so so many of those echoes from uh, Psalm one ten or uh, yep. the the royal the royal wedding psalms and you know, those you know you know, be lifted up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Like all, all of these echoes that, uh, if, if, if Tolkien tried to deny it, I wouldn't believe him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, so I, I'm really glad to hear David that, um, you know, reading my little book made you want to go back and look at Lord of the Rings and it, just have those experiences again, because that's, um, you know that that's really part of the part of the goal and part of the part of the hope that I had for the for the book. And I think what was exciting about giving the lectures, um, uh, frankly, which was tons of fun, and and I, I think I can say really fun for the people attending the lectures as well, because um, you know I tried to read generously passages from Tolkien. I had did, did a few movie clips that were appropriate. Really tried to make it a multimedia immersion. Mm. 
in in the Lord of the Rings and in the text itself with, um, you know, this nice theological framework to, to be thinking about. Well, at each stage of this book, you apply these threefold offices to Christian leadership more generally, using your own role of university president as a, the chief example. So why is this move to application important to you, um, both personally and as a part of these lectures? So, you know, a move to application comes kind of naturally to me as a pastor. Um, Also, I have used this threefold framework in a couple of different contexts. I've used it to talk about um, pastoral ministry, uh, particularly with younger pastors in, in various contexts and mentoring. I've also used this on occasion when I've had an opportunity to speak to a group of Christian school teachers, whether elementary school or high school, and, and sometimes taught it just by um, semi-inductively, by getting the teachers just brainstorming what are the things that they know about prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry in the Bible? Like, what what can they download from their understanding the Old Testament? How do they see that worked out in the character of Christ? And then beginning to think about areas of application in the classroom, because a classroom, um, it it needs, um, the classroom definitely needs a prophetic ministry where truth is spoken, including, um, you know, truth about your present circumstances, spiritual truth, truth about the consequences of certain kinds of actions. I mean, there's a lot of truth telling, um, you know, the prophetic ministry and um, students, school students of all ages, particularly younger elementary grades, but, but also, you know, kids in high school that are facing a lot of challenges in life. They need a friend and mentor who will bear their burdens. They need a lot of prayer. This is part of the calling of the Christian who is called to, to education. Um, or the kingly, you know, the, the things that have to be decided, the decisions that need to be made, the, the the appropriate rule of law and disciplinary consequence that's part of any um, educational context. So I, I've, you know, really enjoyed teaching, lecturing, engaging faculties on that topic. Um, I hadn't really thought about the presidential aspect of things um, until I came into this role. But, but obviously, since I was trying to, initially trying to write a paper, integrating faith and learning in my own area, which is um, you know, leadership of a Christ-centered college, this is the area that I wanted to, to think about. And I, I won't go into great length, but it was interesting to discover that at various key points in the history of Christian education, including the founding of Harvard, aspects of this threefold way of looking at Scripture have been very much in mind as part of um, how we should think about Christian higher education. So there, there was some history to draw on there as well. I, I go every semester. I teach a, a class on uh, leadership that's taught in our business economics department. And there I talk about some of the applications for, for management, um, maybe in a marketplace context, uh, what does it mean to be a truth teller who is oriented with a vision for the future, as well as helping people understand the present? Uh, there's a prophetic aspect of business leadership. There's definitely a priestly. I mean, the really great business leaders do not isolate themselves from their community, but they they walk the floor of the factory. They develop a personal connection. They they bear burdens um, on behalf of their community. Um, you know, so those are just examples. So, but you can really flesh this out. And the reason you can flesh it out is because it, it, it is actually the case that Christ has given all of us prophetic, priestly, and kingly responsibilities in the world. That's true in our evangelistic outreach. It's true of the ministry of the church. But I think we see echoes of it in all the other callings. It, it, it's true for fathers and mothers in the home. I just think this has very wide application. And part of my hope is that People maybe can read, and I, I do try in the book not just to talk about college presidents, but a few other contexts, and I'm hoping that people will be able to pick up on some of those things, and this may be a useful framework for them in a variety of life situations. Excellent. Well, on Christian Humanist Profiles, sir, we like to show hospitality by giving our guests the last word. So what would you like our listeners to consider as we finish our conversation? Yeah, so thank you. I, I love having a last word. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the things I would say is, uh, you know, give yourself the freedom and permission to read The Lord of the Rings again. Uh, if you have never read The Lord of the Rings, 
um, and you're listening to this podcast, then um, you, you have an amazing uh, treat in store for you. And I, I would really encourage you to read it with somebody. Um, my um, my wife had never read Lord of the Rings. She had read The Hobbit, but not Lord of the Rings. One of the things we did our first year of marriage is uh, read the Lord of the Rings out loud. It's great for couples. It's great for mm. parents with children. It's just great in a lot of contexts. I'll also say this, which is something I almost never say about the things that I write, David. I would just really encourage uh, people to get a copy of The Messiah Comes to Middle Earth. And the reason I say that is that the royalties from this project go to support the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. Ah. And, um, you know, it's a it's a lasting treasure for the church to have preserved and disseminated um, the writings of Lewis and Tolkien and other writer, other authors and um, to to be thinking creatively about the ways, very many ways in which their writings still have relevance for the church in the world today. So I'm I am um, not ashamed to uh, to promote my own book in this case because um, it, it's something that'll support I think what is a really worthy enterprise, which is the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Riken. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you, David. It's always great to talk about Tolkien and even better to talk about Jesus. Amen. Well, we hope you enjoyed the conversation too, dear listeners. We've been talking with Dr. Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College and author of The Messiah Comes to Middle Earth, Images of Christ's Threefold Offices in the Lord of the Rings, Published, uh, published by InterVarsity Press. There will be a link to IVP's uh, page for that book in the blog post for this episode when it posts on our blog at christianhumanist.org. If you want to give feedback on this episode, you can post it in uh, the comments section to the show notes on the blog at christianhumanist.org. You can also send feedback to us through email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can also post reviews on iTunes. We appreciate also your good reviews on iTunes. It helps more people find us and get the word out. In the meanwhile, Christian Humanist Profiles is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.